before we get into that, I just want to know where the where the name True Pani yeah. comes from. I can guess, but yeah. you know, I, I I'd, I'd like to hear it from you. Yeah. Pani means uh, water in Hindi, and that's why you know True Pani. The idea was let's have transparency around water quality. Let's um, not say that just because a well is built that X number of people have safe water. Let's actually know if that water is safe through testing and doing analysis. And so that was the idea behind the name. Um, we have pivoted to work with water quality issues in the US. And we kept that name because it was kind of a reminder of everything that we have learned through our work in India. And the problem that we're working to address now does parallel the problem that we are working to address in India. Um, so yeah, we decided to keep that name. Welcome back to Snapshot Atlanta, the podcast series about people engaged in social entrepreneurship and conscious capitalism in the city. In this week's episode, I talked to Shannon Ivanchek, co-founder of Trupani, a company providing water testing, engineering services, and data analysis for environmental and public health related projects all over the city. Here is our conversation. I would say like most great stories, this one started with a trip to India. <laughs> is that how most great stories start with a trip to India? I'm a bit biased, <laughs> yeah. but I'll, I will say so. Um, and so what exactly, so you found yourself in India with, with your friend and soon to be co-founder yeah. of Trupani. So could you tell me the story of, of how you ended up there? So um, that was back in 2015. And so Sam, my friend that I was with, that became my co-founder and I were at Georgia Tech at the time and we were working, um, doing research in a water quality lab there. And um, part of that research project was going to India and doing a field portion of testing where we were comparing water quality and we were looking at um, stored water quality versus um, water quality from a source that people are accessing. So what I mean by that, I guess, is you know if you have someone that's getting water from a well or getting water from a pipe, um, usually that pipe will kick on for a couple hours a day. It's called intermittent water supply. And so that water quality is vastly different from water quality that's stored in the home for water that's stored in the home. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of what we were working on. And we were just comparing data points between these two things. Um, and yeah, we were in central India and it was uh, a ton of fun. But what we started to notice was there's this really big difference in water quality between those two sources. So um, the water quality that people were actually drinking that was stored in the home was significantly worse than what they were accessing. When I when I was doing some research before our conversation, I read that, and that really just shattered the narrative. You know, like for me, it was, oh, people, and and, and you know, I'm from there, so right. this is something that's even prevalent in 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 the country itself, is that uh, a lot of people. I think the number is around 800 million, or you know, could be wrong now. Hopefully, it's less. But the narrative was people don't have access to running water. Yeah, yeah. And and so what you're saying if I have this correct correctly is that running water it, although it is a problem mm -hmm. the bigger problem is actually storing the water. That's kind of what we the direction we were starting to move in and um you know 
the narrative, you're totally right. The narrative is mostly about access. And you see that with a lot of the major nonprofits in the water space. They're all talking about the number of people that don't have access to running water. And that is a huge problem. Like there are for sure people that don't have access to running water. But the majority of what we were seeing in India was people do have something that's called an intermittent water supply where they have running water, not all the time, but sometimes. And that water might be relatively safe, not always. But really, there's this problem with um, storing water and the contamination that occurs when you have water stored in the home for a long period of time. Um, and that's that's something that's wasn't that we weren't seeing being addressed. So what are the problems with with water storage? Why is it um, more contaminated than, let's say, you know, running water? It, there's a few factors. One is um, hygiene practices. You know, if people dip into that stored water supply to get a cup of water, if that cup is dirty or the hand's dirty that, that reaches in, that's going to contaminate that water supply. Um, the other thing is that piped water supply may not have been chlorinated or may not have been chlorinated properly. So, um, you know, when water is sitting for a long period of time, if there is a little bit of contamination, that can grow really quickly um, under those environments. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that kind of play into that. But in general, running water is safer water and stagnant water is less safe. Okay. And so did you guys realize this problem pretty early on into the project? Yeah, we were probably about halfway through and we were, you know, kind of seeing this occur. And um, one day in the lab, we said, you know, let's go out and actually test down to the cup level. Like, let's Mm -hmm. test the cups that people are drinking out of and see if those are contaminated. And over 90 percent of the cups that we tested were contaminated with E. coli. So at that point, we figured, you know, if people are getting safe water, if you're taking bottled sterilized water like we are from our lab and -hmm. pouring it into a dirty cup and then all of a sudden it has e coli in it what's the point of spending a ton of money to build a well and provide people with access to safe water if that water isn't safe when they drink it so you know it kind of was just like this moment of there's so many other factors that go into this besides just building a well or providing people access to safe water because you know do we know that just because that's there that the water they're actually drinking is safe i mean that's 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 incredible i think just that that insight and so how did you and your team go around trying to solve that problem you know, it's it was kind of an eye opener for us, but it wasn't like we were the first ones to ever figure this out, right? Like there's this is pretty commonly known in public health that stored water is less safe. And um, there's a lot of people that are a lot smarter than us that are trying to solve we're trying to solve this problem and are trying to solve this problem and there's some organizations out there that are doing a pretty good job. Um, The approach that we took to it at the time was, you know, we're fortunate enough to be college students at a great research university. Let's spend some time working in the lab and see if there's anything we can think of um, to address part of this problem in this specific case. And so we eventually, took, yeah, yeah. So eventually, you got to copper. As, yeah, as yeah, a potential yeah, yeah. Solution. So eventually, we got to copper as a solution. We spent like six months looking at um, doing kind of a literature review on all types of antimicrobial agents and landed on copper. And the reason we chose copper was because it's really effective at um, at killing suspended microbes or, or acting as a disinfectant. Essentially, like you know, it's the same concept. Silver. It does the same thing. It's why silverware will um, self-sterilize. It's why brass doorknobs will self-sterilize because it does have copper mixed into it. And so, um, and traditionally, 
a lot of people in India had stored water in copper vessels um, that had kind of gotten replaced by stainless steel, which doesn't have that same antimicrobial effect. Um, and so, you know, we said, let's use copper. And we created this copper device um, that would sit in a stored water supply and act as basically an inhibitor for uh, bacteria and other um, microbes to grow in that water supply. What did that look like specifically? I mean, so this this device, was it just kind of like a like a pot or a some type of um, cup? Um, the device that we had come up with was kind of in a flower, like lotus type shape. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we chose that um, was for the appearance, but also for functionality, because figuring out how much copper we needed to use in a stored water supply was really like where a lot of iteration happened. And mm-hmm. by using those petal shapes and stacking them on top of each other, we could get a lot of surface area. Mm-hmm. And the surface area to volume ratio was really what we were going after, um, you know, and making it something that could be used in a lot of different types of storage vessels um, was something that we were we were trying to design. And, and did you guys realize like the cultural significance of the Lotus as well? Did you guys get lucky with that or was that an intentional um, choice? That wasn't, that was intentional. Okay. Um, one of the things that we have learned looking back on this is, you know, there's just so like there's India as a whole, but then there's so many cultures within India and so many different like diverse geographic regions. I mean, it's, you know, you could compare it to the U.S. You have the North and the South, you have the East and the West, you have the cities on the coast, you have the flyover states and all of those areas are so different culturally um, and geographically. And so, um, you know, we had we had selected the Lotus, but that was from just kind of an outside perspective and um, without really an extensive knowledge of the culture. So you had this product at this point. Can I call it that? Was it an invention at this point? Yeah, no. I, would, I would call it a product. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and did people just jump at this opportunity? Like, oh my gosh, this is fen- phenomenal. It's going to end the... You know, water contamination crisis. Yeah. <laughs> or was it was it more of a slow build? Um, I think we we did have a lot of people that were kind of really excited about it at the beginning. I think it was maybe the wrong group of people that was excited about it. So mm. we did we did get a lot of like positive feedback and people making those bold statements like, you know, you're going. This is going to maybe be something that can end the global water crisis, and um, that was something that maybe felt good. But you know, what I think we've learned through all of this is like it's not going to be one single person that solves the global water crisis you know you can have a lot of good ideas but really what it comes down to is looking at what's already been done looking at what's failed looking at you know what has what has sustained and what has survived and knowing that there's not a one-size-all fits or one-size-fits-all solution um, to any of these issues which is something that mm-hmm. we quickly learned with the lotus who was saying these these types of uh grandiose statements um I think it was pr- probably a lot of people that weren't Indian, a lot of people <laughs> that were here in the U.S. You know, like I am a graduate of Georgia Tech and I love Georgia Tech um, and they've provided a ton of great opportunities and resources. But, um, you know, they want to promote entrepreneurs. They want to promote yeah. women that are um, that are kind of going after engineering and entrepreneurship and so our story was appealing right like you have these two young women that are trying to work in water internationally and that's a great you know thing for a newspaper to write about that's a great story to promote the university 
And so I think we got a lot of um, positive feedback that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really wasn't until we had one mentor who um, was also a Georgia Tech graduate, and her name is Susan Davis. And she um, used to run an organization called Improve International. And basically, like their start starting point was compiling all of the failure statistics in water and sanitation and showing all of these technologies that people have tried that haven't worked and haven't you know stood the test of time and so she came in and she was like have you guys thought about you know a b c d e f and g and we had been like well we thought about a right like (laughs) (laughs) we hadn't um we hadn't fully thought through all of those things because we were just coming at it as an engineer and trying to solve this problem without realizing all of the factors that go around you know supply chain and cultural appropriation and all of these other facets of trying to do something internationally So you said a lot of the people that were making these statements really weren't from India or even the places that you wanted to, you know, make sure this product got to. Right. How did the people of India, the the very people that whose lives you were trying to change, how did they react to this? Um, so we went back to India the next year and we took a batch of the lotuses and we went into a community that we had partnered with an organization called Year Out India and they actually are an organization of local people in the community that bring projects into the community. So I think we got a lot of less biased feedback that way because it was people from the community that were the leaders of this organization. So um, we had, you know, we had mixed feedback. We had people use the technology. Um, it was very clear that people didn't think there was a problem with their water to start with, um, especially, you know, like one side of the village that we were working in got their water from a mountain and that mountain had like a religious connotation. And so, you know, people thought, you know, my water's from this mountain, so it's clean because this mountain has a religious connotation. So you have those types of things happen. And ultimately I think, um, people were kind of indifferent to the technology. That's that's interesting because, yeah. you know, you, you have such a different perspective from, you know, the American side. Right. That this is going to pretty much solve the global water right, contamination right. crisis. And, 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 you know, the people whose lives you're trying to help are virtually mm-hmm. like, okay, this is just another thing. So how did you guys try to circumvent those those problems to really show the people that you were trying to help hey, this is actually a viable solution. One thing that we did was we had um, a way of testing for bacteria in the water. And so those kind of looked like, um, they're called Petri film, and you can kind mm-hmm. of see the dots of bacteria on them. So we tested their water without versus with the solution and showed them those results. And that was really an eye-opener. Like physically seeing the results, I think, um, was something that really resonated. Um, you know, and then just trying to have conversations and figure out, you know, where we're coming from versus where they're coming from, what they're hesitant about, like what, um, what they're questioning with the technology. And, um, you know, now I think out of the, uh, lotuses that we distributed, about half of them are probably still in use. We have actually, um, one of the guys that was, um, was working for the organization that lives in the community, um, actually sent us on Instagram recently pictures of people still using them. Oh, wow. Um, and that's three years out. So that's pretty good when you're looking at it in terms of water and sanitation. You know, um, there was a big study out of Stanford where they handed out like 4,000 of those, you know, like personal filters, like a Sawyer mm-hmm. or a Life Straw or something like that. 
and they came back in six months and about 80 percent of them had signs of disuse like dust on them and things like that so people weren't using the technologies that have been distributed and and do you know why that is so why why don't the filters why don't people use the filters if if there's such a clear benefit to using them yeah i think i think it's a few things i think um you know these are something that's designed for people instead of designed with people. And I Mm. think if you look at a lot of like human centered design type of ideology and thoughts that, you know, if you are working with a group of people and say, okay, how do you access your water? How do you interact with your water? What would work within your lifestyle and design from there after already doing that versus like what we did, which was designing beforehand Mm -hmm. and then giving something that had already been created to people. I think that's one thing. Um, And I think, you know, you also have to, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really just understanding those systems. There's an organization um, called Saha, and there was an article that was written about how four different nonprofits came in and essentially put them out of business because what they were doing was hiring people within the community to um, treat and distribute water. And so it was basically this own community-owned water system. And then a church group came in and handed out filters, put them out of business for a little bit. Another group came in and tried to do a different technology, put them out of business for a little bit. But ultimately, people didn't want to adopt those technologies and use them and then ended up going back to Saha in the end. So when you saw that Instagram post of the people still using something that you know, you've, you've built, yeah. how, how does that feel? I mean, it feels good. It definitely feels good. But I think I'm a little bit more cynical coming out of it now, three (laughs) years later, as you can probably tell from talking to me. (laughs) So it's it's a nice feeling. But I don't think by any means that, you know, it's the type of thing that's going to end the global water crisis. So you guys don't do the Lotus products anymore. No, no, we don't. You have pivoted to more local water sanitation Mm -hmm. projects. So what was that decision like from going, you know, kind of taking all of your resources that you've put into put into, you know, southern India and and bringing them back to the U.S. to focus on, you know, a lot of the water crises that are happening in this country? What was that decision like and, and what was the final kind of turning point to where you guys decided, OK, we want to focus back here? That's a good question. And it um, was It was a longer decision. It probably took us about a year and it sort of led us in that direction. So when we came back from India and had all of the data um, on the efficiency of the Lotus and, you know, we were kind of thinking about what would this look like if we tried to scale the solution and would people use it? And ultimately, um, I don't think that the technology that we had developed would be better than other technologies that are already out there. And so we were writing this paper and thinking through all of the issues and something that had been in the back of our mind since we started Trupani was everyone kept saying to us, what about Flint? What about Flint? What about Flint? Because, you know, we were in India in 2015 and that was pretty soon after and working in the water quality lab since 2014. And that was pretty soon after news of the Flint water crisis had broke. And so it was all over everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. And we weren't even working in the space of lead and drinking water whatsoever because we were totally focused on microbial contamination and bacteria. And we started to look more at the case of Flint and the problem of lead in drinking water in the U.S. And there's a ton of, you know, political, social, um, financial reasons that the Flint water crisis happened. Um, But 
one of the main issues is that in this country, water quality that's distributed from a water treatment plant is not the same as the water quality that people are drinking in their homes. And the reason for that is because of lead in the plumbing infrastructure that acts as the transport network from the water treatment facility to the house. Let's say, you know, we're at a treatment facility, so the water mm-hmm. will be treated. Right. And so it's safe to drink then. But right. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> if all goes well. Yeah. But you're saying that because it's being transported through pipes that, you know, have lead, uh-huh. uh, you know, in, in them, the water kind of picks up some lead along the way? Yeah, essentially, yes, okay. that's what's happening. And there's various factors that will increase or decrease that concentration of lead. You know, um, a lot of water systems use corrosion control, mm-hmm. um, which is a way to stop stuff from the pipes entering in the water, essentially. Um, but, you know, sometimes pH changes can cause um, more lead to enter the water. The amount of time that water sitting in contact with those pipes has a big impact. Mm-hmm. So we do some work now with school districts. And, you know, if you have water that's sitting in pipes all summer long, and then you turn that water back on to give them to kids when they go back to school, I mean, those lead levels in that drinking water can rival levels of what's classified as hazardous waste because of how high those lead levels have increased. And so so you found this new problem that was right. a little bit this, more local. This new problem that was more local, but mm-hmm. um, I guess one thing that I should mention if I haven't yet is that um, that problem paralleled what we were seeing in India, right? Um, because yeah, we were yeah, looking at um, source water versus point of use when people are drinking at it, or when people are drinking it. And in the U.S., we're looking at source water, if you consider the source being the water treatment plant, mm-hmm. and then point of use being what's coming out of our tap in our homes. And that quality is a lot worse than what it was at the source. Yeah, that, that's a great point to make that the principles of the problem are the same. Mm-hmm. So in India, you you decided to solve the problem using, you know, the lotus and the, and, and the copper. Yep. How did you solve the problem here? Um, we're still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. How to, are you solving yeah, the yeah, problem? Yeah, yeah. Right. To be honest, um, a lot of it is through education and advocacy and then actually doing projects with school districts, with businesses to test their drinking water and to, um, you know, have a better understanding of what potential sources. Is it the pipe that's leading from the public water main to their property? Is it the faucet? You know, is it um, one of the fittings or fixtures in those interior plumbing infrastructure components um, in that premise plumbing? And so understanding what could be causing the problem and then looking at different solutions, whether that's a um, NSF 53 certified filter, whether that's replacing components of the plumbing infrastructure um, and figuring out what makes sense and what's cost effective um, for that business. It seems kind of like kind of like you're taking a consulting approach yeah totally totally okay. i would say right now we're acting as a small consulting company um, mm-hmm. in the areas of water and we've picked up some projects outside of water as well what are some of those projects um so we do some electric vehicle consulting work for public transit mm-hmm. so um, we look at an electric vehicle that's going to be deployed for a transit agency and figure out what the range of that vehicle would be on the routes that they want to put them on um and you know what the cost associated with the energy that they're going to consume will be. Going back to, to, to the beginning of this uh, 
What would you say has been the hardest part of this whole process? Um, well, there's there's a lot of hard parts, right? As as you know, you're kind of you're kind of in the same boat with what you're doing. Uh-huh. But um, I think the hardest part is just accepting the highs and lows that come with it. You know, there's sometimes where you have really great days, where you have really great meetings, and you really think, you know, this could be a turning point for the business. Um, and then there's just days where you get rejected, and everything just feels like it's going wrong. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're figuring out how you're going to make ends meet and how you're going to grow and scale this company. And so, I think the hardest part is just you know battling with what's going on in your own head and and staying with it. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, one of, something that makes it worse is that those days usually happen consecutively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <Yep. laughs> you know, one day you're great. And then the yep. next day you're like, oh, God, this is never going to work. So, yeah, that's that's you're right. Really I, big mood swings in 24 <laughs> hours. <laughs> what are some misconceptions that you have heard about water quality ever since you you guys have been doing this? I actually did a webinar on this recently, but I would say um, when it comes to lead in drinking water, the biggest misconception is lead's a problem, but not where I live. Um, you know, people are quick to point to Flint, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, other states in the U.S., but here in Atlanta, we have major issues with lead in drinking water. Um, Atlanta public schools have found lead levels that rival Flint. Um, wow. And so, you know, it's not something that we think about down here, but it is an issue. So I would say that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Um, another misconception is around the amount of lead that's safe in drinking water and um the different ways to identify that with different testing methodology. Um, So there is a lot of specific misconceptions um, around lead. And when it comes to international water quality, I would say the biggest misconception is that, um, you know, for X number of dollars a day, you can provide a lifetime of safe water for people. Like that's a statement that I think a lot of organizations use in their marketing campaigns, but the actual problem is so much more detailed than that. And to create a lasting change like that, you need to bring together a lot of different types of people to achieve that. Um, how, how has your team grown? Um, our team has grown a little bit, but we're still really small. We have about four people that are really involved day to day. Um, and then, you know, for other resources as, as needed, we will subcontract stuff out. Um, but, you know, I hope that we can keep growing, um, but we do have a smaller team right now. And, and you, you just actually touched on this, but uh, my final question is, where do you see this going? What, what is the best case scenario for Trupani? <laughs> Um, I think the best case scenario for Trupani is really having a foot in the water world and pursuing technologies and solutions, whether that is a physical product or legislation or education efforts that are going to move the needle on water quality issues domestically and internationally. Um, I think that we really have a good sense of who we are and where we want to move. One of the more strategic things that we've done is um, name a pediatrician. Um, Dr. Hansa Bargava is the director of our advisory board. And so having an understanding of health with the overlap of engineering is something that differentiates us a lot. Um, Where we want to go is keep working with schools hopefully hospitals and other organizations to have a better understanding of their water quality and improve their water quality um, because the health effects of lead, bacteria, 
other contaminants are really profound and we want to help reduce those in whatever way we can um, while also growing the consulting side of the business. So um, completing projects and continuing to grow and iterate on what we've done and, and come up with unique approaches that make sense for us and for our client um, is really where we want to go. One other thing that I'd like to mention, if that's okay, is we're doing a um, documentary screening on September 12th in collaboration with Gears um, and Georgia Voices, two great nonprofits in the Atlanta area. We're teaming up with them to show this documentary, which is called Nor Any Drop to Drink, and it's about the Flint water crisis. It's created, the director is from Flint, um, and interviewed a lot of the people in the area that were impacted in various ways, and it's just a fascinating story that he shares. So for anyone in the Atlanta area, I'd love to invite you to come out to that event on September 12th. A special thanks to Shannon for her time and being a great guest. The event link to the documentary screening is in the episode's description, and early bird tickets are only 8 bucks. Definitely check it out if you've got the time. Next week, I talked to Larry Witherspoon, founder of the Automotive Training Center an organization breaking the cycle of mass incarceration by providing free automotive repair training and employment for young people in the inner city of Atlanta. This episode is a product of Audiographies, edited by Jacob Smolian. The music was created by Yolanda Weathers, Trey Leon, and Keenan Willis. This episode was sponsored by no one, but it could be sponsored by you. Please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash audiographies and consider becoming a patron so we can keep bringing you stories like this one. You'll get access to behind-the-scenes content like photos with our guests, unedited interviews, or bloopers like this one right here. Please check out our Patreon page at www.com. <laughs> Come on. www.com. We'll see you in the next one.